Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome to God's Planning. I am Father Gregory Pine, joined here by Father Bonaventure Chapman. That's How are you doing? Doing great. Yourself? Mm, feeling groovy. Hey, happy Advent. Happy Advent. That's right. We are here, I guess, in the third or fourth week of Advent, something like that. Maybe it's around Christmas. I'm not sure. Time warp because we record things before we post them. Ah! Whoops, Daisy. Um, yeah, we would never tell you that, though. Oh, wait, I just did. All right, so um, let's see. Here here we are, as in olden days. Happy golden days. Um, and we are in the end of, um, you know, the semester here. That's so true. finished up first semester as a PhD candidate in the Catholic University of America. Classes right. gone well. I, th- I think so. It's, you know, going back from the other side of the lectern. So I was teaching mm. philosophy for the last two years, so now... I was grading exams and writing them, and now I'm actually going to be taking them again this mm. week. So uh, that's a little bit different, and studying for them again is is fascinating. Um, but yeah, I think it I think it's it's good to get the mindset, and it takes a little while to knock off the iron, the rust, and the cobwebs, and all that, and whatever metaphors need for there. Um, <laughs> Mix them up. But I've enjoyed, yeah, so I've been, knock off the iron cobwebs. <laughs> enjoyed knocking off iron cobwebs with metallic spiders. Nice. Uh, yes. Those are the best kind. Yeah. yeah. We were talking today at dinner, not the two of us, but I was talking with other people. We never about, eat together. Um, never. We try to avoid it. Um, we were talking about how after, when you're in high school, it seems like it's totally normal to have instruction for like six and a half hours a day, you know, with momentary breaks for lunch and passing between classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you go to college and you only have like 15 hours of class. And then you, whatever, enter the seminary as many people are wont to do mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. then you start teaching and then you go back to studying and you're like jeepers yeah i can't different. believe it this is so wild you know just receiving instruction again you know not that one becomes uninstructable or indocile by virtue of the fact that you've gone to grad school but it's just like it's just kind of weird you're like whoa like how did mode. i do it in high school you know yeah it's a different mode yeah it's just living kind of being in the world at that moment and particular roles you play and then you have to switch back and forth these things yeah so yeah it's just it's just like to think about going to being in a high school situation where i would be instructed for like 30 hours a week it's just mind-boggling i would find that very draining but perhaps that's a tangential point that should be abandoned um well and we don't you know to be honest at least i haven't seen this on the political docket of uh, going back to some sort of like you know, 30 hours a week um, training and stuff for education. But maybe, I don't know, for adults, why not? <laughs> Cheers. Here we go. Um, so in lieu of 30 hours a week, how about 30 minutes of God's planning? Uh, so this week we're uh, going to gonna chat through some uh, another literature theme. So, so far I guess we've done Chesterton, mm-hmm. and then we did Cormac McCarthy. Would there you was... call him literature, Chesterton? What? Would you call Chesterton literature? Wow. Okay, we're okay, gonna go back. Yeah, we're gonna fine. go back to Chesterton drubbing. I feel like I defended him modestly but adequately but in our last adequate. conversation. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, and then we agreed pretty substantially on Cormac McCarthy That's being right. great. And yes. I think that we're about to have a conversation during which we agree pretty much substantially on another person being a great, being a great. <laughs> whoops. So um, the the theme for today is David Foster Wallace, mm. and I think a lot of people have heard of David Foster Wallace because he's associated with a particular genre of postmodern uh, literature and essays uh, that many millennials or hipsters find interesting, intriguing. They may not have read too terribly much of him, but they have the sense that cool people do. So what we're going to do is uh, just kind of dive deep and see what there is to find in the corpus of David Foster Wallace. Mm-hmm. So maybe give us a little bit of a, um, a genealogy. How did you come to discover David Foster Wallace? Who, who 
put you on the scent? Yeah, that's a good question. My my brother was a part of, in high school, he was one of the smart ones, and uh, he was in the AP English and all of this kind of thing. So he was in a long book club, and they read long books. And one of the long books, this was in, this was in 2000, yeah, 1999 maybe, and one of the long books they read was uh, Infinite Jest, the the big, you know, giant behemoth of a book that uh, that Dave Foster Wallace read. So I think I heard his name there, but I didn't read that. Um, and I think I found it, but I knew the name. It's kind of in the background, you know, it's kind of brown noise and such. And then I think I discovered him again in in college. I think I was reading one of his collections of nonfiction essays, considered a lobster. I don't know how I got onto that. But I read him and just got hooked. So then it's a matter of just trying to read as much of him as you can and then forgetting to read the other parts of him. Mm, so, and then getting to those eventually. Yeah, hopefully. Um, there's, there's a lot, but it's, it's a mass. It's a, uh, yeah, you can master the corpus in a way. At least you can read it. Mastering it is, he's, he's a real smart guy, as we'll probably talk about, and as you might know. Um, but you can at least read everything he wrote under like Augustine or, or other people. Um, so, yeah. So, um, and then I came to discover mm-hmm. David Foster Wallace because you recommended him in the novitiate. Uh, I had heard nothing of him until I came to the novitiate. So sometimes it's like strange. You discover things in religious life that you wouldn't associate with religious life. But mm. uh, How dare you? You know, sometimes people are like, oh, you're going to enter religious life and then you're going to die of boredom and your personality is going to be like withered and desiccated and you'll become like wildly uninteresting and that's generally true but yeah, doesn't that, not, yeah yeah it doesn't have it doesn't to be exclude this yeah, exactly yeah. so that all, okay so yeah everything i said is just true except for the fact that you can learn about david foster wallace yeah which makes it all worth it that other side on the ledger <laughs> so I, I would i would say he's fantastic um but yeah it's a trade-off but one that i'm willing to do um so i think people associate david foster wallace with uh, mm. Other folks of this generation, or maybe some postmodern novelists. Um, certainly, yeah, you hear him in the same you know, conversations. Don DeLillo, Don maybe, is a little bit older generation of this. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then the other guy, what's Thomas Pynchon wrote? Thomas Pynchon, yep. Right, mm-hmm. these, uh, so like, Rainbow and different people that. are kind of tooling with the genre of the novel, of the short story, maybe even of essays. Um, and what they're doing, I suppose, is trying to reinterpret it in light of what they perceive as the failure of modernity. Um, so maybe as a way to kind of get into David Foster Wallace's literary style, we could do a little bit of an impressionistic biography. Mm-hmm. I don't think too many people care when he was born and when he died. Oh. Um, but if but we know I don't those even things. Know. Yeah, exactly. Um. What, what is it about David Foster Wallace that's interesting? Like maybe what's a little bit about his background or what's yeah. a little bit about his relationship to belief and religion, things yeah, like that? Yeah, true. So uh, what's, what's fascinating about him is he's a polymath. Um, so he, his father was a philosophy professor. And he was raised in an atheistic household, but um, always found faith very important. Went to church frequently, um, and even when he was in he was in high school, I think it was, he tried to convert to Catholicism got twice, I believe it was. Um, but he always kept a relationship with the church and even the Catholic Church in a way. And he get, comes comes out in some of the essays. Um, so he was, but I should say the important part is that his is he had a relationship with the faith, but also his father as a philosopher spent mean meant he spent a lot of time thinking about philosophy. And he went when he went to college, Amherst College he was, he uh, studied literature, but also really philosophy. And he wrote a senior thesis on time and freedom and necessity on modal logic, actually, <clears throat> which is published and probably not worth reading. But it's one of those things. Um, and it comes out because he wrote, um, well, let's put it this way. <clears throat> he was a man who was deeply in, interested in the, in the questions, the deep questions, the big questions of faith and meaning. But also a very technical philosopher. He knew his knew his ways around those things, and uh, he was also a junior professional tennis player. So he had athletic stuff together. He's a big man. Um, athletics were together. Philosophy was together. 
I mean, kind of all around, you know, guy, real, real polymath, excellent at all these things. And the amazing part is he brings that all to bear. So he doesn't like leave off one. It's, he's a combination of, of an American professional tennis philosopher and he bring and you can he puts that in all of his stuff and you can see it so that but at the same time he's first and foremost i think a writer that's, yeah that's what i'd say yeah it's it's interesting too that like he has you have a sense when you read uh his work that he's very much of the mind that one ought to play the hand he's dealt um he's not deterministic or fatalistic but he is uh intimately associated with how human nature can be both prison and blueprint, I suppose, depending on the way that you look at it. Like, a lot of his characters have a pretty sober appreciation of what they're capable of, and they're kind of reconciled to that fact. And you get the impression that, that he is, I mean, he's, he's writing out of his own experience. Mm-hmm. So when he talks about tennis, he was really good at tennis up until he was about 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. And then for <clears throat> reasons that are entirely beyond his control, he got surpassed by his contemporaries. Like, he knew exactly what he was good at. He was good at playing the wind, and he was good at playing the spin. But he was not a speed man, and he was not a power man. And once, uh, once you know, his contemporaries started outpacing him in that regard, he saw his his decline was imminent. And the way that he reflects upon it in subsequent essays and short stories, it's, I mean, it's pretty delightful. It's, here's a man who knows exactly how good he is. And is able to portray that without making himself to sound better, or even adopting a falsely humble tone and mm-hmm. making him to sound, making himself to sound worse than he is. So the truth of his life becomes uh, a kind of privileged place of encounter with what becomes, um, you know, like the the substance of his novelistic art, which is to mm-hmm. tell the truth and to play the hand you're dealt, which is pretty cool. And you, and you get that impression too with his relationship with the faith, because I think he would sometimes say that he was, I think it's, he's quoted as having said that he was the worst RCIA candidate in the history of the church. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, he tried a couple of times and he kind of flunked out um, because I think at one point he was told that he asked too many questions or he was asking questions that were too probing for the particular, yeah. you know, instructor or catechist. And uh, he was thrown off by that. And also, I mean, he struggled very much with depression, mm-hmm. uh, with drug, I mean, drug abuse, with alcoholism, with a yeah. variety of things. Uh, but he incorporates that all into his works, which is, uh, yeah, it's yeah. Sometimes you get the impression that when people are doing that, that they're just languishing in a puddle of self pity. But mm-hmm. he's not doing that. Mm-hmm. He's he's telling you the truth in as much as he can, and it's kind of his gift to you, without feeling like yeah, like it's disingenuous or somehow insincere. Mm-hmm. So maybe give us then like um, with that spiritual impressionistic background, uh, maybe a little concrete about what does he write? Yeah. Um, what's the best? What should people start with? Well, things like that. Yeah. Um, so he, I mean, we'll break it down into fiction and nonfiction, which uh, I, I still remember I was working at Barnes and Noble one time and someone came up and said, I'm looking for this book. And I said, well, is it, is it in a fiction or nonfiction section? She said, well, which one's the true one? <laughs> just destroy, just destroy. <laughs> Part of my soul just left my body and yeah. said, forget "Hasn't come the, back since." Forget this world. Um, yeah. And but Maybe so, she was a death but if we so yeah, if we break it down to to fiction, which is true, and then nonfiction, which is like just kind of facts. Um, he writes in both these genres, and the fiction stuff are his big books. He's got three three there: his early Broom of the System, and then Infinite Jest, of course, is the the mountain. That's the Himalayas, you could say. And then the final one that he didn't finish was the Pale King, uh, and then he has a collection of short stories. Um, so Girl with the Curious Hair is a collection of those, Oblivion, and then his final, I think his final one, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. Those are three three examples of that, uh, of collections there. And there, there so those, those are the fiction works that he has. But he's also very, I mean, he's, he's excellent in nonfiction stuff as well. Um, so in, in that sense, and we'll mention those in a second, is 
you can get into them depending on where you want to, I think you start with what your, your kind of home base is. So if you like reading fiction, start with his fiction stuff, you know, short stories maybe in, in Oblivion or Girl with Curious Hair, or uh, one of the novels, and then head over to the nonfiction. I think it's probably easy to start with his nonfiction and then move to his fiction because you get used to him a little bit of nonfiction. It's easier in a sense. And then the fiction, he's, he's quite complicated, but beautiful. Nonfiction stuff, he's got a bunch of essay collections that are just phenomenal. Uh, on a supposedly fun thing that I'll never do again is uh, co an incredible collection. His second one, Considered a Lobster, is I think actually that every essay in there is the best nonfiction essay I've ever read. It's amazing. Like, it's just... Tied for first. Just tied. They're all tied for first. Yeah. Yeah. And then he has a final collection, both Flesh and Not. Um, but the uh, Considered Lobster and Honest Supposedly Fun thing, those are just incredible pieces. And Considered Lobster is amazing. He has a, a book also on the history of uh, George Cantor and the in, uh, infinity and transfinite mathematics, which he's which is delightful. <laughs> uh, he's just incredible the way he, he talks about things. And then, of course... Um, his famous two, 2005 uh, Kenyan college dress, This Is Water, is, a, is kind of, if you want to just, you know, I set myself up for the metaphor of t putting your toe in the water on that one, um, then that's the first place to start. And then you'll fall in love with him, I think, if you read that. This Is Water, you can find it online, I believe. Yeah, he actually, I mean, it was recorded and it's on YouTube, so you can just listen to the whole thing. Oh, it's maybe, it's, yeah, it's maybe 20 minutes long. That's great. And you get to hear his intonation and his inimitable way. Yeah, but the, so we, it's, I would say, yeah, start with whatever your home base is. I mean, if you just start, if you love big novels, just grab Infinite Jest and rock out. Um, if you're not committed to a thousand page novels with 114 pages of footnotes that you need to actually read, um, then start with one of the essay collections, either um, Considered a Lobster and or a, a supposedly fun thing. If you do Considered a Lobster, don't read the first essay um, until later. <laughs> um, it's porn industry which is he makes it really for reasons we'll talk about in a second but still I would start with the Dostoevsky essay or start with uh, Considered Lobster actually itself is a model of how you do moral philosophy and moral reflection in, in a postmodern American setting yeah so like here's a question in 50 years mm. will people read David Foster Wallace and if they do read David Foster Wallace what will you think be well, you know, if he's collected in mm. one of these anthologies. They do that... have an anthology of his, uh, David Foster Wallace Reader. Okay. Um, but it's basically just like most of Infinite, it's chunks of Infinite Jest and some random stuff. So I can't speak highly of it um, looking through it. But yeah. I feel too like we should uh, warn people at this stage that a lot of his books are about nothing. Because um, in the sense that like modernity is or postmodernity is kind of mm. about nothing. So Infinite Jest isn't a story that has a very clear narrative arc. Mm. It doesn't have a plot in the classic sense. It doesn't have a rising action or a falling action in the classic sense. I think um, it's it, it doesn't fail as a novel in the way that bad novels fail as a novel. Like he's consciously tinkering with the novelistic mm -hmm. genre, but he's also trying to give you an entry into a disaffected youth and a recovering you know person who had abused yep. substances for a long time. And so you're supposed to enter their respective like ennui and like post-apocalyptic, you know, moral devastation. And those are hard things to portray in like a kind of Dickensian and Nicholas Nickleby triumphed over all, you know, and married the girl and everything was great. So he's he's despaired of overly neat packaging. Mm. So just to say, heads up, it might be a little bit uh, of a jarring experience if you're expecting that. Yeah, I could say um, that this is one of the most substantial values of reading Dave Frost to Wallace, I think, is that... Um, some authors writing his stuff would would take delight in the fact that there is no particular narrative arc specifically and it's all kind of 
fragmentation and everything's kind of up in the air and there's no particular hero per se. Yeah, it's, it's complicated, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I don't think he aims for that. I think he just, he's in a sense an intellectual journalist in a way that he's just imbibing the the Dasein, the being of the world that we live in right now, that like for most people out there as giant systems of belief, you know, we Catholics have a good, we, we're affected by in a way in living in this culture today, the Western culture and the, in, in post-modernity, the big narratives are gone. They're just, it's, it's all for grabs in a way. And you can feel like you have vertigo or something. And so I don't think he, he doesn't intend, I don't think there's any intention of pushing that forward. But what he does is he inhabits and re-describes that space of narrati- narratival fragmentation that we live in and finds meaning within those things so that someone after him, for instance, you know, could get out of it. But I think he's he sets up in the best terms the kind of fragmentation of meaning that we that we have in the secular world. Often the people we meet, the people we work with, the people that don't go to daily mass or don't go to read, listen to podcasts and such, um, and even us in our as we kind of drink drink in what our culture is, he describes that to you in the most beautiful terms, um, and then provides you reminders, not so much for us in a way, but for those who are in the secular world, that it doesn't have to be that way. So I think he's not intending to drive for any of that stuff. He just embodies the culture so well. Uh, it's it's like he's a sociologist in the sense of the culture, but a literary sociologist, so he's, he's delightful to read. So, I like this a lot. Let's pick this theme up when we come back from a short break. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. So here we are back on God's Planning. We're chatting about David Foster Wallace. What gives him staying power? What about his his literary genius um, is especially, I don't know, well-timed for the present generation or speaks to the contemporary culture with potent force. And we're, we're on this theme of, he, on the one hand, he despairs of narrative, but on the other hand, he gives you access to meaning even amidst a fragmented or otherwise up for grabsy type uh, social setting. Mm. And I think like here, I think that um, some people who have read Walker Percy might be able to sympathize with what he's doing because I think that what he's, he's doing what Walker Percy is doing, but in, 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 a, in a more artful or elegant way. Mm-hmm. This is not to take pot shots at, at Walker Percy. I think Walker Percy's best book is The Moviegoer. Oh, um, and I, I have a, I mean, I can, I can defend that on another day. We, we will can have, have a, to do it. Yeah, that's right. Because I love Phantos Syndrome. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Infinitely fascinating. Um, yeah. Thomas Hibbs says that it's a bad book. Okay, keep going. Um, but in The Moviegoer, I think that I had a, you know, a friend who was explaining to me that um, Binks goes to the movie theater and he watches people and he has the sense that their lives matter because their lives are watched. Mm-hmm. And the moral transformation that takes place in the book isn't that he gets over his malaise or his ennui or that he ceases to be a lonely, sad, and anxious person. It's rather that he has a profound, a more deepened appreciation through the relationships that he cultivates in the work that his life is precious or his life is seen, you know, in a kind of little way type way. I mean, yeah. it's not like explicitly Catholic in that sense. I mean, he is a Catholic. It's set in New Orleans. So yeah. the Catholic culture is part yep. of the deal. But he he gains the appreciation that his life matters, that his life is seen. And I think that what you have in David Foster Wallace is something like that. Like David Foster Wallace was very explicit that he wanted to cultivate 
a new sincerity. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, he felt the disaffection of the generation before him, which had, you know, like the boomers who had kind of gone, gone all in for consumption. This is not to say every boomer to a man is in this way, but he said he saw that the prevailing culture mm-hmm. had been come, yep. had become kind of shallow. And then what had grown out of that was a rejection in the next generation that was very ironic. So people mm-hmm. were just kind of sloughing off fundamental commitments because they saw ho- how hollow were the lives mm-hmm. of those who had gone before them. And yeah. so they were engaging in these, you know, like um, kind of exercises of irony or yeah. unmasking. They were constantly showing people to be fake, to be phony, to have lived a life that was in truth a fact, a kind of subtle farce. Mm-hmm. Um, and they proved that they were, that they had chops. So they proved that they were serious persons by being witheringly ironic. Mm-hmm. And Foster Wallace is of the mind that that like is a way of actually breaking down community that's a way of breaking down friendships that's a way of breaking down family and actually isolating people even more right and creating a culture not only of shallowness but of corporate despair yeah it's, um, it's, and it's it's in a sense a hyper modernity of that and it's cheap parlor tricks uh, and i think i think you're absolutely right about the the move from the hollowness to the critique and in a lot of ways i'm reminded of paul ricor a uh, great french philosopher hermeneutic philosopher who wrote on on freud and, and nietzsche and others and he talked about uh, the difference between first naivete and second naivete. And he thought that what you had in first naivete was just kind of the everyday beliefs everyone has about things, the normal kind of belief. And then modernity and the Enlightenment and others provided this critical turn that attacked first naivete, like God exists and, you know, there's meaning in life and human nature is important and all these things. And then Ricoeur said, though, but you can't stop at the critical stage. You have to go on to second naivete, which appreciates the criticism but then goes back and turns it back on itself to return to what is true about first naivete at a new level mm-hmm. and actually a, de- a deepening of it so that you're you're back to the first you're back to the beginning if, if to know it again for the first time which is good old T.S. Eliot trope mm. this is all from Hegel I suppose um, and Lewis, I think David Foster Wallace does this marvelously because he goes through the kind of critical turn to return us back to wholesomeness I mean, there's something so, let's put it this way, postmodernity is not about universal narrative, it's about particularity and concrete things. And David Foster Wallace is so thoroughly Midwestern American. He, he represents the very best of Midwestern American kind of all shucks. Basic beliefs and goodness and hospitality and transcendence and meaning and value and apple pie and he does it, but he does it in such a sophisticated, but not overly sophisticated way. He does it in the way of basically saying, I know you critical postmodernist kind of literary people. I know how you do this, but it's cheap parlor tricks. Why don't you try to use those things and use those tools you've been given and actually bring about meaning like we had? And it's, he's, so he, in a sense, I think of him, and so he's a bit like a Norman Rockwell, Rockwell figure. It's, it's entirely wholesome, and he's entirely American, and only America could produce, only Midwestern America, Illinois particularly, could produce someone who wrote, writes in this way. And that's, it comes out in his essays and, 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 and with his, and his other writing. But there's something, yeah, there's something extremely American, wholesome, and traditional about him. I think, too, um, so this is just based off. Let's see, um, Infinite Jest. Yeah, we should uh, we give some examples there. Yes, I, th- I think that like something that he's trying to reclaim in that book is that it's possible for one human being to know and to love another human being, mm-hmm. which is a very basic thing. And I think a lot of people, if you ask them, is it possible for one human being to know and love another human being, they say, of course. But then you have some of these postmodern philosophers and novelists who have made a cottage industry of showing how 
you know, man is effectively incommunicable and we are each kind of individual monads who can say nothing meaningful. Loving is just power. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and then that like all of these different power structures and hierarchies and social arraignments need to be deconstructed so we can show that truth be told, like we're all just manipulating each other. Mm -hmm. And, and, and David Foster Wallace knows those arguments and he sees those arguments, but he thinks that they're false. And he thinks Mm -hmm. that if they are permitted to be purveyed, that they'll, they'll go further towards isolating human beings for each other. So he's, you know, using the same, um, you know, kind of uh, philosophical elegance or, you know, like sophistication to, to go about it in the right way, I think. And so you have like two main characters. The one guy is a junior tennis, you know, he's excellent at junior tennis. And then there's the other guy who's a recovered, um, who, who, you know, like abused opioids, I mm-hmm. guess, allotted, yeah. and he's recovered from it. And both of them are trying, basically trying to love their family and trying to love their friends and going about it in sometimes very self-destructive or poor ways but they're they're about that business and they're mm-hmm. they're they're basically on a path of discovery as to whether or not it can be pulled off and and he's very even-handed he's kind of ambivalent and mm. as much as he doesn't close the you know he doesn't um like close the case or settle it definitively but he shows you like the prospect of mm-hmm. it being successful which i think is just really honest yeah i think one of the the striking images have uh, from that from that book um is the a setting where there's and these are two minor characters this is a um a french wheelchair assassin uh, so, <laughs> yeah um and then and a cross like a, a cross-dressing spy that's right um and he's not like intending to be cross- everything's just jumbled up right <laughs> so you've got a wheelchair assassin guy and the, this cross-dressing spy and they're on this like a uh, precipice and they're you know they're kind of talking in code in a different way and it's at this point that the, the wheelchair assassin starts reminding the, the cross-dressing spy, uh, or not spy, or tr- fourth, fourth level spy, of the importance of, of loving something and loving what you worship and that everyone, will, everyone is what you love eventually. So this deeply Augustinian point is said by a man in a wheelchair who is a capicua trying to, you know, I want to give away the whole story, to this other man who's like dressed up as, as a woman with like trying to figure out how his costume all works and it's always telling him, take off your wig. It's just, but it's, see, it's the perfect setting of, Amer- of, of like modern Western culture where we find ourselves with these bizarre roles and narratives and no one knows what we're doing at any particular time. And yet the deep questions are still there. They're, they're just there and it's real it feels real this is the other in his nonfiction, he has a beautiful essay on in considered lobster on dostoevsky and he's talking about he's reviewing the five volume by joseph frank uh, i think his name is joseph frank uh the great american biographer of of dostoevsky and he in this essay wallace intersperses like little three or four line kind of fervorinos that say things like is there truth i mean what if there isn't any truth what do we do and they feel totally disjointed so he's going through a discussing Dostoevsky's life and the biography and all this and he has these weird like existential quotes in there like questions and and then about three quarters of the way through or something he stops in the essay and says now you've noticed I've been interspersing these really deep existential spiritual texts and it probably felt totally contrived and he said the genius of Dostoevsky is as you're reading his works he does this and you don't notice and I absolutely love that, and I think that's what David Foster Wallace tried tried to do was to intersperse, remind people of the seriousness of it without you without beating over your it over your head. So kind of catching everyone off guard with the with truth and yeah. meaning. That's what I like about him. I think too, like 
that kind of, well, what, how do I say this? I think he uses criticism as an essentially positive thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of the essay collection, a supposedly fun thing that I'll Mm -hmm. never do again. The title, I mean, I guess the titular essay is about his experience on a cruise, Mm -hmm. but there's another essay in there about a, I think it's like an Illinois state fair. It's it's a state fair, but he's, he's, he's doing these things which are kind of, um, I don't know exactly how you describe it. Yeah. So it's like Mm -hmm. social commentary. He's kind of making fun of the thing as he is engaged upon it. Like as you might, you know, like with a cruise ship, there are three decks on which you can, you know, gamble lots of money in, in like very quick fashion. And there are like 65 bars and there's, you know, like a kind of silly chapel where people go to work. You know, it's just, there are a lot of things about it that you can make fun of. He shows up to a dinner, I think, where he's wearing one of those tuxedo t-shirts and uh, he knows everyone else will be dressed up. Yeah. yeah. So like, so it's, it's the kind of thing where he could just leave it at um, making fun of the mm-hmm. situation. He could leave it at just joking it. But ultimately what he's trying to build up um, is an image as to like why people, you know, go on cruises, not to make fun of these people, but to show like what about their motivations and what about their pursuits are in fact like good, universal, mm-hmm. communicable, and afford the possibility or the prospect of deep interconnection. And with like the Illinois State Fair too, I, I mean, it's, it's, there are a lot of things that are funny at a state fair. I mean, it's like yes. practically everything under the sun can be coated in batter and fried, Yes, you know, and it's just like, it's just a lot of the, the wares that are hawked are just seemingly mm-hmm. silly and have no and other settings. Which... you have to do. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. like he's making fun of the thing, but he's making the fun of, he's making fun of the thing in a constructive way, mm-hmm. which is I, I think there's a kind of connection there with um, the way that fraternal correction is practiced mm-hmm. in um, in the home. Mm-hmm. So I mean, in the religious house, in the home, in the mm-hmm. religious house, I mean, you can't have serious conversations with people about everything under the sun, or mm-hmm. life just gets heavy, burdensome, and exhausting. Mm-hmm. Like humor is to be deployed um, to make life light and kind of you know uh, whimsical and mm-hmm. capricious and just delightful indeed. Um, and you can you can use humor and you can kind of deploy it for uh, drawing to your brother's attention the fact that he's being perhaps silly or a little bit precious or maybe extra in this regard and that maybe he could think about things what in another adjectives. fashion. Yeah, I know, right? Precious, silly, and, and uh, extra. 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 <laughs> Gosh, I love it. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, you can use that in a way that like can be identified as genuinely generous and kind and upbuilding but you're, you're you're using criticism in a way that's constructive and doesn't necessarily need to be denigratory mm. and negative and i think he has that about it. like he has a he has a positive it's vision it's not of biting sarcasm or biting humor it's not like see look at me at post and he always he places himself in these situations that's the nice part about the criticism is that he's the one involved and he's very self-reflective but again none of one of those like pouty kind of ways of just you're just making fun of yourself and expecting pity and all this. It's it's he's honest. He's genuine, wholesome. Again, Midwesterner. I think of also, um, I'm saying this is ties tied, not to say that he's a Dominican or any sort of thing. But here's another thing that tied in with the fraternal correction for me for the Dominican life is he's a non-moral moralist. He does moralism. But non-morally, in the way Dominicans, we try not to say you should do this, you shouldn't do this, because the intellect is what, you know, we we want to show the good and then the will kind of desires and falls after it. Um, And and Wallace writes, he has moral agendas in a way, but it's even weird to say that, but he has positions, but they come off as non-moral. So you're drawn to a particular moral position just by the way he presents it, without feeling like you're being coerced or anything. I, the, the titular essay I've considered a lobster is an essay he had to write for a food food magazine about Boston's lobster, um, uh, Boston, some, some big lobster festival thing. So they're boiling tons of lobsters. And the whole thing is a reflection on what it means to eat like lobsters, 
whether it's right, whether it's wrong, like, and he's entirely even-handed. And it's a, because that's a fraud, you can imagine an essay doing, defending, you know, the one thing saying, you know, vegetarianism is crazy, or doing it the other way and saying, like, how could you possibly let these things suffer? Like, you can easily do those essays. And he doesn't do any of that. You don't actually know, in a sense, what his position is at the end. And in fact, it doesn't matter, because, again, it's not about him. It's about the moral claims of the universe and where you see yourself falling on those. And it's, it's a gem. That is a phenomenal essay on how to do moral, make moral claims in a non-moral kind of way, not a hijacking way. I love it. Yeah. No, I, I, I love it that, um, like you said, the idea of uh, preaching non-moralistically is that there's this sense that if you tell people what to do, that they'll want to do the opposite thing. It's like um, it doesn't become attractive to break a rule until such time as the rule is promulgated. And you're mm-hmm. like, absolutely, I'm going to do the opposite. And so there's this kind of recognition on the part of the preacher and on the part of the essayist in his case, where if you're going to try to communicate a moral truth, you have to show it like you have to appeal to the mind of the person and seek to illuminate so that their their hearts might be drawn after that good thing as revealed. And I think that he's he has an eye for reality and has a way of communicating it such that you are invited into a relationship with reality that's sympathetic and you are invited into a relationship with reality which is affirmative which doesn't mean that you're like naive and like a Pollyanna about the whole thing like everything's great you know just like Mm -hmm. our town let's go back to the olden times you know he's like the olden times are coming back you know there was no golden age truth be told but that there is there's something to be made of the present, and it's mm-hmm. not a purely human constructive act. There's actually a discovery, you know, mm-hmm. which which is antecedent to that, and we can live a good and happy life. It's possible that we can salvage something from what we have before us. Mm-hmm. So I think with that, we are uh, we are about played out, mm-hmm. out of time. But there's um, lots more to say, as you can imagine, and we inc- I encourage you to uh, to take him up in a sense, start with nonfiction or the fiction, and uh, see if, see if you like him. But he, as you as you can tell. I think we're both positive of, of Death Wallace. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I feel like there are many things to say that remain, so maybe we can do another episode about him in a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that way people have more to love and therefore perhaps more to pursue. Mm-hmm. So uh, thanks so much for joining us again on God's Planning. Please like and share with your friends. Uh, put it out there to somebody whom you think could benefit from a good 30 minutes a week uh, during this, uh, this, this holiday season, this Christmas tide. And um, we hope to hear back from you, um, yeah, in a week's time. So until then, cheers. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.